Folks, I want to welcome you all to On the Edge with K.A. Owens. I'm K.A. Owens, and we're broadcasting from the top of the Habern Building in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, you can find out a little bit more about our station if you go to forwardradio.org. And we're live streaming now, so if you go to that website, click on a button, you can listen to us anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. Folks, uh, again, this is On the Edge with K.A. Owens. I'm K.A. Owens, and uh, we've got our guest today, uh, Michael T. Michael T. is a actor, playwright, author, and activist. Uh, and so, uh, welcome, Michael T. Yeah, thank you for inviting me back again, K.A. And so today we're going to talk about um, the legacy of uh, Lorraine Hansberry. For those of you who don't remember, uh, Lorraine Hansberry was born on May 19, 1930, and died uh, January 12, 1965, at 34 years of age. Well-known playwright, famous for writing A Raisin in the Sun. Uh, she was the first African-American female to have a play performed on Broadway in 1954. Uh she was uh, the first black playwright and youngest African-American to receive, in 1959, the New York Drama Critics Circle Award uh, for Best American Play. She was the first African-American to win the Distinguished Drama Desk Award. So, uh, Michael, what's your take on the legacy of Lorraine Hansberry? Oh, she was, she was great. She was wrote my favorite play of all time, A Raisin in the Sun. I never tire of seeing that particular play done on stage or on film. And uh, I think that she has left us a great legacy. And as you know, uh, K.A., well, first I just want to mention that I didn't remember that she was born on Malcolm X's birthday, May 19th. That's interesting. But... Um, she was an artistic giant uh, who was very political. And that play, A Raisin in the Sun, was probably the first play that got any national and international recognition written by an African-American about working-class African-American people in the 1950s. Because keep in mind, just like what we said uh, in our uh, Sidney Poitier um, podcast, that up until that time, black people in cinema had been pretty much ridiculed. Most of the parts that you got, you know, you were playing maids or porters or buffoons up until the 1950s. That was the regular um, artistic national portrayal of black people, starting with the minstrel shows. But in the 1950s, strangely enough, we see, again, a Sidney Poitier emerging, playing dignified roles. And we see a sister like Lorraine Hansberry being the first one to win, you know, a major award and, you know, staging a play on Broadway that didn't make us look stupid, uh, a play in which was a penetrating psychological analysis and study 
of the various personalities and emotional conflicts and political and social contradictions within a working class African-American family in Chicago, a play that stands the test of time to this day because she raised, you know, any number of issues. And as I said before in our Sidney Poitier interview, this was also at a time of fascism in the United States, you know, a fascism that, you know, had emerged in Europe in the 1930s, fascism that a major world war was fought over in large part. And um, despite the fascists being defeated in war, the remnants of fascism were still very prevalent in the United States in the 1950s when Lorraine Hansberry emerged. I mean, we had um, domestic terrorism was still rampant. We were still living behind the Jim Crow curtain. So for her to get a play staged on Broadway in the 50s that made us look human, that spoke realistically, and frankly to, you know, some of the struggles we were engaged in in that time is quite a legacy. And um, I can't say enough about her. Uh, you know, but what I, what I discovered, though, in, you know, uh, recently researching her is that Part of the motivation for being a writer was, you know, her disdain for um, having seen, um, after she had seen Porgy and Bess, which up until that time was the major uh, theatrical representation of black people that wasn't making fun of us and making us look stupid and buffoons and in any way was supposedly depicting black life written by a white man. But as she points out, as much as she loved the music, and I loved it too, and I still love it to this day. You know, some interesting music written by a great musician. Uh, but the portrayal still depended on a lot of stereotypes. Did not, you know, I mean, you couldn't look at that and say, okay, well, that's the way the typical black people act and live. But it was only until A Raisin in the Sun emerged that we see a a, 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 a a realistic portrayal of the average black person you know and, and the case could be made that we don't really see a whole lot of that today there was much more than we used to see but you know the working class black family and you know and it wasn't done in a way to you know just make our existence all about our suffering under oppression but it was written in a way to show us as humans with all the foibles humans have. You know, I was talking about, you know, the character study. When you look at each character in that play, Raisin in the Sun, Sidney Poitier's character, he's a chauffeur, disgruntled chauffeur. You know, living there with his mother and his wife, now, I don't believe the wife was working, but in the course of the play, she gets pregnant. And, you know, they're on a low income. His sister's there. She's an aspiring actress, I believe. And, you know, and then it you know, either has an international dimension. You know, the sister is dating an African guy. And then there's the young son. I mean, like I said, the play still stands the, the test of time. And I think that um, 
you know, it's one of the best representations of our of our families of that time that has ever ever been written. And I also found out that, you know, she had a over a thousand page dossier, FBI dossier, because she was very politically active. She was close to people like, you know, black radicals like uh W.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson. She wrote for this magazine called Freedom Magazine, which was started by Paul Robeson. And, uh, you know, the J. Edgar Hoover, our old buddy, and, uh, he uh, was not lost on him. So they kept, you know, uh, they eventually accumulated a thousand page dossier on her because of her, uh, her, her radicalism. So one of the things that inspired me to do a show on Lorraine Hansberry is uh, sort of the latest issue of the New Yorker magazine, uh, January 24th, 2022 issues. It's got an article called Radical Acts, uh, The Many Lives of Lorraine Hansberry by Blair McClendon. And he um, handles books. And there's a new book out uh, Charles J. Shields has got a new biography of Lorraine. Uh, it's Lorraine Hansberry, The Life Behind a Raising the Sun. Mm-hmm. And then there are other works. I mean, uh, uh, here's this is this is uh, Blair Blair McClendon writes. In recent years, the puzzling paradox of how a black lesbian communist became <laughs> a darling of mainstream America has been explored in multiple biographies. <laughs> including Amani Perry's Looking for Lorraine and Soyaka Diggs Colbert's Radical Vision and in Tracy Heather Strain's documentary Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart. And so uh, Shields' portrait, this is according to Blair McClendon, is the latest attempt to expand our sense of the personal struggle behind the public figure and to illuminate the many contradictions that she sought to live and work through. Mm. Uh, Now, according to McClendon, uh, Hansberry was not raised to be a radical. She Mm -hmm. was born in Chicago uh, the child of an illustrious family. Now, these are, you know, well-off black folk mm-hmm. now. Lorraine's father, called Augustus Hansberry, a real estate speculator and proud race man. Mm-hmm. Now, race man, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the term, that meant in those days that somebody who was proud to be black and and was interested in the uplift of the race. Would yeah. that be fair, to Michael, to say what that meant back in those days? Yeah, and for our younger viewers, you know, someone, they would be called Afrocentric today. Yeah. And uh, race men and and women. And, and it's interesting, uh, did you have something else you were going to add? Well, I just want to give the, the audience a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lorraine's father, uh, uh, seven years, when she was seven, the family brought a house in a white, neighborhood mm-hmm. faced with eviction by the local property owners association Carl fought against racially restrictive housing covenants in court uh, shortly before the case was argued a crowd of white neighbors gathered outside of the Hansbury home mm-hmm. 
Nanny Lorraine's mother stood watch with a gun. Mm-hmm. So uh, Carl Hansberry's fight wound up before the Supreme Court, where he won. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. And so now, here's the thing. According to the Shields biography, uh-huh. uh, Carl was not just a warrior against housing segregation. He was, Shields says, the king of kitchenettes, a mm-hmm. businessman who spotted an opportunity in Chicago's rapidly growing black population. Mm-hmm. Urban housing was scarce. Uh, Carl, through a few intermediaries, set about blockbusting getting white families to sell cheaply by moving black residents into their neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. He'd buy a building, now this is Lorraine's dad, Mm -hmm. then erect flimsy, flammable partitions dividing the apartments into cramped kitchenettes, Mm -hmm. like the one that the youngers yearned to escape. Then, In other words, (laughs) her father actually uh, created the type of housing that the that the family in the play were trying to uh, escape. But see, I just see that as the contradictions of black capitalists. Exactly. (laughs) So when a decent return on rental property was 6%, Hansberry was making 40% Mm -hmm. Shields rights. This unseemly fact has been glossed over by some biographers who have described Carl Hansberry as an entrepreneur. The complaints from his renters make clear that Slumlord uh, is a more accurate description. Yeah, and I think, you know, just generally that, you know, when you talk about people's lives, you got to tell the whole story, you know, and all is glory. And At glory. least after they're dead. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, in some cases that needs to be told even before they're dead. You know, and that's one of, like I said, the contradictions of black capitalism. Many black capitalists and would-be capitalists benefited from segregation. You know, the fact that black people had uh, limited opportunities gave would-be black capitalists more opportunities without competition to exploit them. But what I think is also interesting is that in an interview with Studs Terkel, uh, Lorraine, um, you know, pointed out what you said earlier that, you know, she came up, you know, materially comfortable background, unlike most black people of that time. But there was a a, um, a black middle class, you know, going back to the 19th century. Um, and but she pointed out and it probably was the reason that separated her from her dad that she recognized early on that as much as her life was more comfortable than the average black person, that they were still in a social ghetto. You know, even, quote unquote, integrated with white folks. The spaces that even the black middle class and capitalists were restricted to forced them into the same social ghetto as any poor black person which was the source of a lot of their resentment. You know, the the, the segregation was not just territorial, but it was spatial and it was social. So uh, I think her sensitivity to that drove a lot of her radicalism 
as it has done for a number of black middle class people. You know, that's what, one of the dilemmas, you know, that people can't understand, you know, okay, you're a comfortable black person. Why would you become radical? Well, white supremacy and the social system of segregation drove many middle class, yes, many African-American middle class people were driven into radicalism because of white supremacy. And even though they lived more comfortable lives compared to the majority of the other black people, uh, they were, as Lorraine Hansberry said, in a real social space that could be called a ghetto, where their opportunities and their relationships were highly constricted and restricted, and they knew that. And then, of course, there were some who, uh, rather than fight those restrictions and that segregation, chose to take advantage of it. It appears that her father kind of did both. (laughs) So uh, through her political circles, this is according to uh, McClendon, Hansberry met Robert Nemirov, the son of Russian Jewish immigrants, and the two became a couple. Mm -hmm. And they got married... uh, and uh, and then uh, Hansberry and Nemirov shared political commitments, but desire in a deeper sense was missing from their marriage. Mm. Uh, uh, Hansberry wrote to her husband, I want one or two things which you simply cannot give. Uh, and so... Uh, and that relates to what you were saying about her, her sexual... Uh, lifestyle and preferences because, you know, she was friends with uh, Edie Windsor who was an icon of what was to become the LGBTQ movement uh, later on. It was called that in the 50s, but she was friends with some prominent, you know, people who would go on um, after Lorraine's death to, you know, be prominent members of the LGBTQ movement. So, according to McClendon, the internal conflict between Lorraine the village radical and Lorraine the daughter of the Chicago bourgeoisie would become a familiar and painful one. She believed that homophobia was a philosophically active anti-feminist dogma. She subscribed to the latter, the first national lesbian publication, and when it ran a piece about how lesbians should dress and act, she dashed off a characteristically emphatic letter to the editor. As a child of the black elite, she wrote, she had been taught how to dress and act for the dominant social group. Mm -hmm. It had not changed which hotels would deny her entrance or stop the cops from sneering at her mother when a brick shattered her window. Yes. Appeasement, Hansberry believed, wouldn't get you very far. Her demand was freedom, nothing Less. Mm-hmm. So, uh, even when Hansberry's marriage began to dissolve and she started dating women, she and Nemirov continued living together. Mm-hmm. They would divorce a year before her death. Her sexuality was well known in the village, mm-hmm. where she could be seen driving a girlfriend, driving a convertible with a girlfriend. But it was never a public matter in her lifetime. Yes, I heard that once her 
uh, diary or you know notes she had written had uh, been published, you know, uh, posthumously that it was clear that you know she had uh, you know relationships with women. But you can you know imagine in the 1950s, <laughs> you know, to be black and lesbian. I mean, that would have, you know, could have destroyed me. Bad enough to be black, and she overcame some of those hurdles. Mm -hmm. But the knowledge that she was a lesbian, too, that would have put her in disfavor with a lot of black people. Well, in a sense, uh, she was, this is my problem, she was somewhat lucky to be in the entertainment industry where there was a lot more of that uh, going on and being tolerated yeah. Uh, in well, the entertainment well, industry. Well, artists tend to be more open-minded. Yes. Not every artist, but and art plus, generally. Yes, she had a cushion that is with ordinary people are forced to be conventional because if they're too unconventional, they can't get hired. <laughs> One, she was making money from that she had earned, and two, her parents had money, and as long as they didn't disown her, she wouldn't starve. Exactly. She had a and, backup. But like other a lot of people, white would-be artists have. <laughs> Exactly, but a lot of uh, folks are forced to at least pretend to be conventional just to survive because yes. the repercussions of yes. of not being conventional are yeah. uh, starvation uh, and not being able to get hired or being prevented from doing what it is that you actually want to do. Yeah, uh, yeah. And she was fortunate in that way, you know, notwithstanding, you know, the obstacles that she faced. You know, she came from a middle-class black family, which kind of cushioned the material potential material hardships, and uh, and you know she you know gravitated around a group of people who were much more open minded for the time. I mean, in Greenwich Village in the fifties, a lot of black artists migrated there because they were accepted. Yes, so um... accepted where if they had come to Louisville, Kentucky, they would have probably been driven out. So. Her next play, and this is according to uh, Blair McClendon, writer for The New Yorker, she didn't know it would be her last, was The Sign in Sidney yes. Kirstein's Window about village intellectuals whose artistic <laughs> careers are floundering and whose love lives are a mess. Yeah, it's based a lot on her own experiences. Uh, and so, uh, so through all that, uh, Hansberry was sick and getting sicker. Mm. She had ulcers, anemia, and calcium deposits. This is according to Blair mm. McClendon. Uh, she visited doctors and underwent exploratory uh, surgery. The truth was that she had pancreatic cancer, mm. but she was never told. Mm -hmm. Nemirov concluded that it would be better if she didn't know how dire the state of her health was. Mm. Now, and this is very interesting, Michael, from an artistic point of view. Their friends took up a collection while she was in the hospital, not to pay for her care, but to keep Sidney Brewstein running. That is, to keep mm -hmm. the play running. That's artistic camaraderie. The play closed on January 12, 1965, the night Hansberg died. Yes. She was 34 years old. Too young, too young. But her memory lives, and that play, A Raisin in the Sun, will never grow old. It's amazing how, you know, it still, like I said before, stands the test of time here in 2022. 
did you ever see, by the way, the uh, Puff Daddy um, uh, performance of that? No, <laughs> I haven't seen it's that. It's not as good as Sidney Poitier. <laughs> not as good as Sidney. Yeah, he played the Sidney Poitier role. I mean, yeah. I think it was in the last 10 years or so. Well, I you know, I, I respect Puff Daddy as a businessman and uh, – and uh, to stepping up in that challenge, I, I respect the he brother tried. for that as well. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, in a speech a few weeks before Raisin debuted in New York, Hansberry said it was a black writer's duty to join the wars against one's time and culture. Uh, amen, sister. That's my belief, too. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, so, so folks, today we've been talking about uh, the late uh, Lorraine Hansberry, <laughs> who was born May 19th, 1930, and died uh, in 1965 at 34 years of age, uh, the author of A Raisin in the Sun. Uh, so, uh, so, she, so she had feelings about the role of... Uh, the artists in society, uh, mm-hmm. and that's and uh, that's interesting. And of course, that's uh, something that comes up now. And, you know, uh, I think it's interesting that, uh, uh, of course, during the whole Black Lives Matter era and, and old Breonna Taylor and George Floyd situation, there were some artists who really did step up. Well, felt, yeah, felt we like always have had that, you know. Yeah. At the same time, we have the flip side of that coin of those artists who will sell themselves cheap and um, have no relationship to the movement because they recognize that could hurt their careers. Mm. Uh, but thank God for people like Lorraine Hansberry and Sidney Poitier and so many others who. Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte. Sammy Davis Jr. Don't leave Sammy out. He stood up during the. Yeah, to a certain extent. Yeah. yeah. I have mixed emotions about him now, because I heard that uh, during the Free Angela Davis campaign, you know, he he wore a a Free Angela Davis button, but when he got around Republicans, they said he took it off. Mm. See, that kind of stuff I don't like. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, uh, yeah, so uh, Eartha Kitt. Oh, yeah, she was very outspoken. Eartha Uh, Kitt, oh, my gosh. And some who have forgotten... uh, uh, now, because um, some got to do what you can while you're alive, because fame fades, and uh, uh, and there, it depends on how much money you have in the bank, too. I mean, uh, I do remember when uh, the late Reverend Lewis Coleman would bring uh, comedian uh, Dick Gregory to town, oh, retired yeah. comedian. Of course, Dick had been a brilliant comedian, but devoted most of his life last uh, to. Uh, Activism and causes, and uh, so I wanted to talk to Dick about things, and uh, he said, "Look, well, he was getting ready to get on the plane because you know uh, Reverend Coleman called him into town, various things, and he said, tell you what you do, young brother, you come to, uh, I'll meet you in the lobby of the Gold House at six o'clock in the morning." So I, I, well, all right. So I met him at the lobby, and we just, we just chopped it up. And, and folks, you don't know what chop it up means. We talked about <laughs> a lot of different things. And uh, he, what uh, Dick Gregory said was, uh, uh, most celebrities have about seven years to get all they're going to get mm. uh, to cash in. 
And they have to really stay focused to make sure they get their money right during that seven-year period. And that's why it's difficult to get some celebrities to come out and get involved in things because um, they're trying to be focused uh, in their peak earning years to make as much as they can. Yeah. And uh, so I understood that because uh, you look at so many bad deals, uh, uh, a lot of times celebrities have to make it two or three times because uh, the first deal they made was not good. Uh, yeah. And Because uh, going all, all, all the way back, uh, Duke Ellington's manager taking 45% off the mm. top. But, uh, mm. folks, uh, we've been here with Michael <laughs> T., uh, 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 it's, it's good to be here with you, Mike. And uh, always. And so, talking about Lorraine Hansberry. So, folks, this is on the edge with Ka Owens, uh, broadcasting one hundred six point five FM, and uh, we will be back next week. <laughs>